Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. The New Statesman. Hello, I'm Katie Stallard, and you're listening to World Review from The New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. Then, later in the week, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. Today, I'm speaking to Andrew Small, a senior fellow at the German Marshall Fund's Asia program and the author of No Limits, the inside story of China's war with the West, or as it was published in the UK, The Rupture, China and the Global Race for the Future. We'll discuss Europe's changing approach to China and what that means for the future of European relations with Beijing. Andrew, thank you for joining me. It's great to have you on the podcast. Delighted to be able to join you today. So as we are recording this in early March, we've just seen this flurry of Chinese diplomatic activity in Europe culminating in Wang Yi's visit to the Munich Security Conference. So I want to get into that and where you see this relationship heading, but I want to start by asking you to take us back and just give us a sense of the broader context here and how you would characterize the significance of the shift that we've seen in relations between China and Europe over the last five years or so. So I think for people who are following this, it can seem to be moving rather slowly. The developments of the China-Europe relationship, Europe's China policy, I think the people who are close be a bit frustrated at the pace. But I characterize it in the book as something that is actually revolutionary, the scale and breadth of what's underway. And I think it deliberately focused on Europe, not just because of the Europe-China relationship in its own sake, but because I think you had this collective adjustment really across the advanced industrialized world. And I think Europe's adjustment was not for not dissimilar reasons to what we saw in the United States, but to what we saw elsewhere as well, Japan, Australia, in different ways, India. This was really a collective shift that went on, even if it seems that the US is often at the bleeding edge of this. Europe made its changes for very similar reasons. And if we wind back a few years ago, the idea that Europe would be calling China a systemic rival was absolutely unimaginable. The idea that Europe would basically be embarking on this really wholesale readjustment of 
the openness of its system to China, technology, economics, a whole series of these things. The idea that people would come out and talk about the need to rebalance away from China, to move away from the kinds of risky dependencies that we've seen, the idea that this has become common sense in European policy rather than, again, something that would barely be said in polite company back in in 2018. These all revolutionary changes, even if there are parts of it, including where I'm sitting in, in, in Germany, that tend to be often more minded to be at the slow end of these changes rather than at the edge of them. But the fact is, these dramatic shifts are underway really across the liberal democracies and the advanced industrial world. If we focus on the Europe part of this, what do you see as the key factors that are driving this shift? So I think what you had that was the tipping point in Europe was certainly on the economic side. I think what happened was, in a sense, there, there's been a collective view that has said that the old f policy framework with China has failed. The view that, you know, roughly speaking, military balancing, which Europe didn't do so much of, but that integrating in the economic and technological sphere, and then hoping that over time you would have roughly a version of domestic politics in China that we could live with, and that China would see enough of a stake in the international system to maintain a kind of roughly benign set of relations, that this is no longer sustainable. And I don't think it was necessarily the assumption was that China would become a democracy. I think there's versions of the party state of a sort that we'd seen at different points in the past, where people did believe that they were seeing a China that was heading in, in a direction that would continue to make adjustments to its, its domestic economic model, and that had a version of politics that we could just about get along. And so I certainly think a lot of it is the shift that we've seen under Xi Jinping, but it predates that. I think there's a trajectory that we've seen from China, particularly since the global financial crisis, that has been, that's taken a view of Europe, of the liberal democracies, and of China's own trajectory that just landed in a very different place. And I think the sense there was, at a certain point, time ran out. I think the US at a certain point decided time had run out for reasons that were particularly around the military catch-up that we were seeing. But the hinge for Europe was very much that what we were seeing with things like the huge industrial policy plans for Made in China 2025, to take one of the most obvious examples, but the trajectory just on the economic side, that all of the practices that we've seen at the kind of low end of the value chain were translating to the high end as well. This was a threat to Europe's economic model, and that the alarms started to be rung by the parts of the European political and economic scene that had seemingly benefited most from the relationship, i.e. German industry, the BDI. It was the BDI that came out with the starkest description of China as a systemic competitor because they saw the fusion of what these developments were amounting to for the future of the German economic model. The authoritarian tendencies at home, worsening under Xi Jinping, the technology developments and the rate of catch-up, the idea that all of these techniques were going to be applied in these sectors, and then what was going on in third markets as well with the Belt and Road. I think the shorthand version that sometimes cited is Made in China 2025 meets the Belt and Road. This was changing the, the landscape for these firms across the world in their other markets and at home in Europe as well. And I think the sense with this, when this is starting to be taken more seriously, particularly by the people close to it, and I would continue to highlight particularly in Europe, this was not driven by hawks. 
This was driven by a lot of the friends of China, not always publicly, but I think some of the firms that were involved in drawing up the BDI paper were some of the ones that had the biggest economic stakes in China and the people that had the deepest knowledge of China and were saying that they were alarmed at, the, at what they were seeing. And what this would have to amount to was not just a shift in China policy. China policy is only kind of a subset of what we were talking about. A huge amount needed to change at once about Europe's entire economic model, its political thinking, wider strategy. All of this is going to be driven by this, which is why, coming back to the beginning of the question, this feels like a set of revolutionary changes. It intersects with other developments as well, other developments in the geopolitical landscape, other assessments, what we've seen with China-Russia, supply chains more broadly. This is also not just a China question. What it's requiring is a really wholesale set of changes for how Europe positions itself and thinks about its role in the world. You have... This great term, disillusioned doves, in terms of the key constituency that you see driving parts of this. I should also point out to our listeners, Andrew's chapters in this book all have song lyrics as their title. And this chapter is called When Doves Cry, which is frankly brilliant. But (laughs) I digress. What role do you see the debate over 5G playing in this? Would you say this is when really these issues started to come into sharper focus for Europe? So I think you had the the set of shocks. The point at which you got the BDI paper, the point at which the EU came out with its own paper talking about China being a systemic rival, was, I think, the beginning of this big stock-taking exercise that said, we're in a different landscape now, we need to rethink this. That was really the start of that effort. But then you had a series of shocks that came after that. 5G, covid and then the Russian invasion of Ukraine and China's role in that. I think 5G was an important one simply because it illustrated a lot of how these different dynamics had fused for China, that we were in a situation in Europe where we were just falling into a situation in which Chinese firms, primarily Huawei, was going to have this absolutely dominant role across European digital infrastructure, and that various key governments, including the UK and Germany, particularly notably, we're pretty much saying there's nothing we can do about this. And that this is what our economic integration model looks like. And also we're so far down the line on this that it cannot be reversed. It's too expensive. It's too costly. And that you had various threats from the Chinese side, literally from some of the ambassadors in these countries saying, if you don't go embedding China in your digital infrastructure, then we will punish you in other ways economically. And I think this was quite an important shift for a lot of the people who started to turn around and look at it and say, how are we in this position? And certainly this was pushed quite hard on the US side, where the alarms were really raised, particularly by the Trump administration in saying, you know, these decisions are being made now. These aren't just about 5G. This is about kind of foundations of the entire future of Europe's digital infrastructure beyond that, beyond the telecoms sector. And these are what the security concerns around this amount to, not just the classic kind of data exfiltration, spying, and the things that people had worried about in the past with 4G, but the very nature of 5G posed a different set of risks. I think most notably crystallized in in the idea, even when it came to issues such as military mobilization for NATO, you could have outages that would even affect European capacity to mobilize in in some of these. And that we'd moved from this kind of hardware-centric to software-centric model with 5G that was just much harder to do the risk mitigation that we'd seen in, in the past. But I think the sense is that this really cut across all the different issues, economic, 
technological, security, political, and that we were in the wrong place on it, and that we needed to make, again, quite a significant set of changes to pivot away from this. It was easier in one sense because the rival firms for Huawei were European. This was not just something that could be badged as this is the US pushing its own commercial interests here. It was Nokia and Ericsson that were the ones that were going to benefit from this. There was a European solution to it. And this was also the question when it came to industrial policy. How were we in a situation in which an area that had been one of our leading specialities in the telecom sector was something where China was now dominating the entire landscape globally and was about to dominate the 5G networks in Europe. So I think this produced a lot of stock taking politically in Europe and particularly in some of the key capitals. Again, although this took place right across the continent, I think some of the biggest shocks were in Berlin and London. A lot of the US pressure was there. But what you saw from a lot of the politicians that took this issue up was not just um, how are we thinking about 5G, but what does this tell us about the entire relationship with China and how do we need to start rethinking this as a result? And I think you effectively got a new generation of politicians in Europe that were brought into thinking through questions, these questions that were systemic. 5G is a systemic issue that illustrates all of these questions in a way that Taiwan or trade ties alone don't, and that wanted to revisit the relationship with China in something that was essentially a systemic way as a result. How do you see China's own diplomatic behaviour perhaps helping to catalyse that process? You talk there about the Chinese ambassadors making this argument quite strongly that if you don't go ahead with this, there are going to be economic consequences. Did that sort of help to prove the case for why this might be a very bad idea to go further down this path? They made the job easier. And in fact, if you talk to some of the US officials who were running the campaign in in Europe, they said the Chinese diplomats were their best allies in this because you just wait for them to issue these threats. And it would just illustrate the point that if you found yourself in a situation in future where this was what you were dependent on, this system, and a system which, again, because they had also made it easier by passing a national intelligence law that compelled certain behavior on the part of Chinese firms in terms of what they would have to comply with. It made it easier that this distinction that one used to draw between the state and the private sector had become so much more fused under Xi Jinping, given the presence of party cells and simply the demands that were going to private sector firms. But So it became harder to draw this distinction, and it was easier as a result of policies in Beijing. But as you suggest, at the diplomatic level, the diplomats that were running around basically making these threats, in Germany's case, there's some dispute how clearly this threat was made. There was essentially a kind of, you have a large car industry, you make a lot of your profits in China, This is a notable thing when you're thinking about your 5G issues. It was crude at times, frankly. And so, of course, it helped to reinforce the case for those who wanted to say, this is the system you're going to be dealing with. If you go further and deeper into this, it's going to be very hard to extricate yourself from the capacity for China to exercise these kinds of coercive practices that they're already demonstrating now is going to look a lot worse when the spine of your Um, digital infrastructure is based on Chinese technology. And they can, as well as making these economic threats, start to say, I think we're running out of components and tie this in the way that they frequently do to political and economic relations and behaviour. And the second major shock that you outlined there was COVID. What role did that play in shaping attitudes in Europe? I think one of the most important things with COVID was not just the obvious thing, which was the supply chain shock and how far it exposed European dependence. I think for European policymakers, 
they've actually been quite used to China being something of a status quo actor during crises. That no matter what practices and problematic things you saw from China, when crises hit, there was a way of dealing with Beijing in a certain way. We saw that through the Eurozone crisis particularly, but to some extent we saw it after Crimea. We saw it at a number of different junctures. If you go back to even to 9-11 and some of these other cases, the sense was that when it came down to it, China was brought into the system, would cooperate the global system in a global framework in which it needed to have decent economic ties, it needed to have a framework that worked. And so if you had something going on like a major pandemic, privately, discreetly, you'd figure out ways to work together to address it. That was the assumption going into it, most famously laid out by Macron when he gave some of the best protective equipment stocks to China when the pandemic hit there, saying they'll remember this when the time comes. And instead, what one had to put up with was the instrumentalization of the supply chains, the wolf warrior diplomacy, the messages about democracy is failing and China is succeeding. Absolutely kind of, I think, shocking to Europeans in a context where they thought they were different from the US. They could understand why all of this was playing out with the Trump administration. But why Europe? What did this mean? And so I think it was further than reinforced by what happened with Ukraine to say, actually, this is a different China. They don't see their stakes in the system in the same way. Even a crisis like this, they're going to be deeply engaged instead in ideological competition and instrumentalizing this for that purpose, instrumentalizing it for coercive purposes as well. So I think that dramatically accelerated some of the thinking on the European side in saying we, we cannot count on China in circumstances like this. We have to assume that we at least need to be ready to deal with a China that's much more hostile in, in, in these circumstances. And so I think that even more so than how far it exposed supply chains, not just medical supplies, but in so many other areas, how dependent we had become on China and how unthinking we'd become about all of these just-in-time deliveries and, and things. But that was certainly a marker on that area, which again was certainly reinforced by what went on with Russia a couple of years later. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print, or both from as little as £1 a week. That's 12 weeks for just £12. That's one euro a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. Hi, I'm Anoush and I host The New Statesman podcast. Twice a week, we get under the skin of Westminster to help understand what's going on and what's going to happen next. We interview politicians, policymakers and people on the front line to get you the full story behind the headlines. Plus, hear from our award-winning editorial team, including political editor Andrew Marr, to get to the bottom of what on earth is happening. Listen to the New Statesman podcast. You can subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. 
Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive & June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive & June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive & June, too, is it's a quick dry. It dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. So that tees up nicely then the, the final shock, which is Europe and the broader West coming to terms with the reality of China's relationship with Russia, sort of encapsulated in this statement on 4th February 2022, right before the start of the Russian invasion of the No Limits Partnership between China and Russia, which of course is the title of your book here in the US. So how would you characterize that process and I guess how that moment landed where you are there in Europe? I think what went on in the lead up to the war was that there were European officials essentially going to their Chinese counterparts and saying, how you handled crime was okay with us. Neutrality is fine. Please just create a framework while we're engaged in all of this diplomacy to try and head things off with Russia, to position yourself in a way that is that version of neutrality, that we can live with. And it became clear in the lead up that was not what was going to happen. Even before the joint statement in February, the sense was that China was tilting in a different direction on this. And one can assess the reasons why, certainly in, in the book, it's something that I see as part not just of the China-Russia relationship, but the wider readjustment that's been taking place on the Chinese side about its position in this kind of new global struggle that they see underway, not just the United States, but in the sense of the entire US alliance system, we were going to get a backdrop going into the most sensitive moments of the pre-war diplomacy in which China was a supporter. China provided an enabling backdrop essentially for what was happening, a form of political support that we had not seen from China before with various kind of assumed things that would come along with this. So I think this was a bit of a shock again for Europe because what it also amounted to was, was the first moment in which you could see China as a much more direct security threat to Europe, essentially, at least creating the conditions for a security threat to look much worse than it would have, in a way that cyber attacks and things like that simply that crystallized in the same way. And what you actually had, of course, in the joint statement as well, was a very explicit position that China took for the first time, the position of sympathy and support for the two Russian treaty proposals from December, which were essentially a NATO rollback. When Russia proposed them, they were seen as complete non-starters, of course, even as grounds for negotiations, which China came out to say that they sympathized and supported. And 
what this kind of amounts to was for Europe a threshold crossing thing as well, because it was essentially saying in a way that had never been the case, we will back Russia in important ways in its vision of the European security order. And I think that as well landed with some degree of shock. This was something that I think had not necessarily been expected. It was one thing providing you know, deep forms of bilateral support, but this was a position that was pretty explicit to come out and essentially say NATO is the problem and not necessarily we are going to make a thing of demanding NATO rollback, but that our vision of European security is aligned and directly with, with, with Russia's. And that you're going to get this kind of reciprocity of support. Russia will lean more closely to support China and Asia, and China will provide certain different quality of support to, to Russian positions in, in Europe. And I think this has really tilted things, but there's been a level of disbelief and denial in Europe as well, which kind of pulls us very far through to the, the present day on this, um, because I think people have wanted and wished that this is not the case. They've still leaned on the idea that there's some great points of differentiation between the two sides, that China could play a constructive role. I think there are plenty of policymakers in Europe that have been very realistic about this across the course of the year. They did a pretty good job immediately after the invasion of essentially saying to China, you're on watch. But I think we had this window from October through to not very long ago, before it started swinging through Europe, essentially where there were then these hopes that because China had made these pro forma statements about nuclear weapons usage during Olaf Scholz's German Chancellor's visit and in Bali, that this in some sense represented some real differentiation. And certainly Chinese diplomats have done a, a better job in the last period of time in a way that they did not early after the invasion of saying that we don't entirely agree with what Russia's doing, we're not so comfortable, we weren't warned, all of these sorts of things. But now I think we're back to the stock realism again of seeing that the forms of support that China has extended to Russia in very practical terms over the last year um, have been significant and that it could get worse. Now that we're in a situation that Russia's running out of artillery and there's this question in particular there, debate whether this is true of drones, of what forms of support China might provide, and that it is already providing significant levels of backing on the economic side, on semiconductors and in various other areas. This, if it consolidates and if the view consolidates, is then a real shift into something that looks much more like block politics, which people are very uncomfortable about facing up to, but where China's decisions with reference to Russia have seemed at certain junctures to be indifferent. This is where Europe will be led as a result. To go back to where we started, you mentioned the Wang Yi's visits in Europe and what has seemed to be, I think your colleague Noah Barkin has described this as sort of Chinese diplomats fanning out across the continent in recent weeks to deliver exactly that message that, look, we weren't warned that this was going to happen. We are uncomfortable with some aspects of this. We can still do business together. You can have strategic autonomy from the US. You don't have to go along with their view on this. But then we saw Wang Yi go straight from Munich, or more or less straight from Munich to Moscow to vaunt the strength of Sino-Russian relations, to advertise the fact that Xi Jinping seems to be going to visit Vladimir Putin in the spring. And then, of course, we've seen Lukashenko go the other way earlier this week with a visit to Beijing. So how do you see these efforts in recent weeks going down? Do you see this as signs that China is genuinely shifting its approach to diplomacy towards Europe? Or do you see this really as 
consolidating views there that look, this is where China stands and it's time to end the wishful thinking that you describe and deal with the reality of where China-Russia relations really are. As you say, as you've covered in your other recent podcast on this, you're getting this cluster of visits that have been going on. I mean, you look at the hard edge of the diplomacy at the moment. Lukashenko, the Iranian president, bilateral activities with Russia. I mean, there, there is something that looks like more of a consolidation of these friendships and partnerships on, on the Chinese side, which is one of the other things that I dig into a bit on in the book, that China wants to build its own block and is more comfortable now taking steps with some of these partners that it was not in the past. This is still dripping in on the European side in terms of a recognition of this and what this might amount to. I think, as you say, there is hope at these different points that things can be otherwise, that you at least can find ways to stabilize the relationship. I think that's still there. Unquestionably, that's still there. There's still a large bilateral trade relationship. It's not going away. There's still going to be economic ties that need to be managed. There's much further that this could slide. So even for those who are relatively realistic about this, I think there's still, given all the things that Europe is wrestling with at the moment, I don't think they want a kind of precipitous slide in the relationship with China. But certainly what we're seeing from the charm offensive and what the messaging that's been given back is, there is no substance to this. This is a, we are going to say the same things in a slightly nicer amount than we, we were doing before. We'll cut the extreme edge of the world warrior diplomacy, though it's still rather bracing when you're watching this in, in, in Munich to see that it's being directed towards the United States. It's, it's not gone away. There's just a sort of temporary respite with the very explicit, you one when deals with all these delegations coming through Europe, a very explicit goal of saying, we want to break up the transatlantic relationship on this. We don't want you siding with the Americans. And this slightly infantilized approach of saying, you're only doing this because the Americans are making you be strategically autonomous, which I think there are corners where this lands, but I think the mainstream on European opinion, particularly where we are on the transatlantic relationship right now and in the context of the war, is not in that place. And so I'm not sure at the moment that it's it's proving to be particularly effective. I don't think the position paper on Ukraine that the Chinese government put out had a reinforcing effect of making anyone persuaded that China was actually trying to do anything for peace. But I think really to recognize what's going on the China-Russia side and what this might translate into is extremely uncomfortable. If we're starting to think through questions like sanctioning Chinese entities on the European side, people do not want to have to deal with this right now. And so there's a, still a certain amount of denial, much of which did play out in recent months. And no matter how many times people have slapped in the face by Xi Jinping on, on these things, there's still the willingness to turn around and say that they hope things could be could be otherwise. And I think when we get the reopening of the Chinese economy that's underway as well, these kinds of facts on the ground, developments, the fact that we're resuming as well this level of kind of diplomatic exchange, interpersonal ties and things that we've been missing really for the, the last few years does change the feel. And so I think we're, we're not going to get the kind of hardest edge sense still, and certainly here in Germany, but we'll have Macron visiting at the beginning of April. I think there's still going to be a view a certain kind of quality of relationship should be held together. But I think there's an understanding that we'd head into a very dark place Indeed, if we did get something that looked like qualitative lethal aid being provided on the Chinese side, and there's a real decision for Beijing on that at the moment, because it will, the relationship with Europe has much further to slide in a way that the relationship with the United States does not. 
one brief final question, as I know we're already longer than I promised you that we would be, but which is to say, do you see this trajectory now as being set? Do you think there is still scope with, for instance, these visits planned in the coming months for China to turn this around? Or do you see this more as being a case of speed than of direction in the relationship? I think your formulation is exactly right. And this is why it can then feel, I think, in other parts of the world, like Europe isn't really moving because it does, on some of these things, feel like it is moving more slowly. Many officials in the current US administration talk about Europe being one or two years behind where they were. They can recognize themselves in Europe. They can see where they were in their assessments. And then there's been this adjustment to the reality in some of these, in a whole host of different areas, which made them have to move further and harder than they would also necessarily have liked. I think there's still been hopes in different places that certain elements of the relationship can be retrieved. I think there's still going to be efforts on the European side now, even diplomatically, to possible. We haven't had the kind of full spectrum bilateral diplomacy for a couple of years now. It's all been virtual. So I think there's still going to be a certain degree of testing out. And there's a lot that's difficult to think through when it comes to how to model risk questions in relation to China. I think we're still at the beginning only of analyzing the data on what some of these economic exposures look like, how to think about the pace of adjustment to that, how to do diversification, de-risking. All of these are still in quite nation stages. But the direction, I think, on all of this is clear. It is all moving in a, in a particular direction, whether on the economic side, the technology relationship between Europe and China, and then with this overhang on the security question now that could move things in a qualitatively different direction there too. And as with the US, as with others, you still have to navigate this in a context in which there, a, a huge economic relationship remains. And so as the mantra of no decoupling, I mean, there will be no wholesale decoupling. The question is what kind of disentangling of this relationship on the economic side is desirable and possible, but you're still going to have a context in which you have very different quality of economic interactions, of course, by the, with the obvious comparison of the Cold War. And this is a different problem set to, to manage on the European side. And I think, although the direction of flow is there, I'm not necessarily sure that this has been you know, the full extent of thinking either about how to structure this economic relationship, what a form of block politics looks like. A lot of policymakers who are still very wedded to maintaining a certain quality of global institutions and at a juncture in which we're moving in a direction in which much more of the action is now being constructed through a kind of allied set of institutions and efforts at coordination on, on, on the one side and an increasingly ideologically hostile group on the other side, with China in the kind of driving seat, ultimately, in a way, when it comes to these structural changes that, that Russia can't beat, whether it, China's the one that can help develop a resilient architecture against sanctions in a way that Russia alone never can. There are a whole series of these longer-term questions that I think are still in the process of being wrestled with, even if people can see where, where we're headed on all of it. Andrew Small, thank you so much for joining me today, and congratulations on the book, No Limits or The Rupture, depending uh, where you are, which I would encourage all of our listeners to read. This has been World Review from The New Statesman. You can read all our international coverage on our website, newstatesman.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a nice review. The producer has been Mae Robson. The team will be back later in the week. I'm Katie Stallard. Thanks for listening and until next time.
Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.